We'll hear argument next to number 98405, uh, Janet Reno versus Bossier Parish School Board and George Price versus Bossier Parish School Board. Spectators are admonished, do not talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. Mr. Wolfson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Congress enacted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 to prevent jurisdictions from contriving voting practices with the purpose of perpetuating official discrimination and prolonging the existing disparity between black and white voter participation at that time. The background and the text of Section 5 and this Court's decisions construing it show that it reaches all voting changes enacted with a discriminatory purpose, and it is not limited to changes intended to make matters worse for minorities. Particularly persuasive on this point is the background of Section 5, which confirms that it reaches all intentionally discriminatory voting changes. A principal target of Section 5 was hard-bitten official resistance to increase black voter participation and evasion by covered jurisdictions of adverse federal court decrees that had declared such resistance to be unconstitutional. In 1965, Congress was concerned with opening up the process to increase black participation and not just preventing further encroachment on, excuse me, blacks' registration and right to vote. Why would it be concerned about only that purpose and not also that effect? In other words, you may be right. right about this, but if you're right about it, we just made a wrong decision when we said that the effect portion only covers retrogression. Well, we're but once you've made that decision, uh, it, it seems to me the purpose clause only only covers retrogression. Why would Congress say we don't care if the if the per, if the effect clause only covers retrogression, but we want the purpose clause to cover everything? Why wouldn't want the effect clause to cover everything? The reason is that Section 5 reaches both the Constitution itself and also goes beyond the Constitution to reach those changes that, although not discriminatory, motivated by a discriminatory purpose, nonetheless have an adverse effect on the, on the ability of minorities to participate. And in Beer, when the Court construed the effect prong, uh, it, it, was, it was considering Congress's decision to go beyond the 14th and 15th Amendment and address only, only changes that had that, that had that effect. In other words, there was no question in that case that Congress had exercised its authority to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendment itself, which reaches, uh, which reaches discriminatory voting changes. The only question was, as was put earlier in this case, how far beyond the Constitution uh, did Congress intend to reach? Now, and the, that was reaffirmed in City of Rome, where the Court once again said, uh, looked at the effect prong. It was challenged there as being beyond Congress's power uh, to enforce, enforce the 14th and 15th Amendment. And the Court said, yes, it's true, the effect prong does reach beyond the Constitution, uh, but it, it nonetheless upheld as a valid exercise but of do, do we even power. reach this question, Mr. Wolfson, if the uh, District Court's findings of fact are upheld? The district court, we read that, although it is you, unclear. You would have to show they're right. clearly erroneous. Right. No, I'll, 
I don't, I don't agree with that. Although it is unclear, we read the district court as making findings of fact in, in the traditional sense only on the question of retrogressive purpose and not really reaching the issue of a discriminatory but not a retrogressive purpose. What, well, what, what, what if you're wrong on that question? Right. Well, e- even if the district court did opine on the subject of of it, it didn't look at the question of discriminatory, the broader question, under the Arlington Heights standard. So it, there is no f- uh, finding of fact which well, is entitled you, how to How can you tell that it didn't? Well, it didn't. Excuse me. It didn't. It, it certainly didn't examine any of the evidence under Arlington Heights with a view towards discriminatory but non-retrogressive intent. Each time it looked at each time it recited an Arlington Heights factor and then sifted the evidence, it then said, uh, and, and then this doesn't show retrogressive intent. And one of the most important findings of, or observations was it made, that it made. Um, this court on the previous case had remanded the case specifically so that the district court could look at the importance of the history of resistance to school desegregation decrees. And when the district court recited that point, it then said, all of this evidence is admissible to show intent, but nonetheless it doesn't show retrogressive intent. So it, it clearly understood that that evidence should be, should be concerned about discriminatory but non-retrogressive intent, but nonetheless the only way that it evaluated it referred to retrogressive intent. I, I thought it says the opposite. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought the first opinion it says, plaintiff bears the burden of proving it did not adopt the police jury plan with a discriminatory purpose. Then you in your brief say, we argued discriminatory purpose. Then on remand, the majority says, we don't have to go into this purpose business because the record will not support a conclusion that extends beyond the presence or absence of retrogressive right. relief. But then Judge Silberman <laughs> says, in his concurrence, we, of course, never rejected such evidence. The, the evidence being that uh, right, but it's difficult. That sentence that Your Honor just quoted, it's difficult, in, in, indeed, I believe, impossible to square that with um, with several things. First of all, the sentence where it says all of that history is admissible to prove intent. So plainly, the district court, mm-hmm. although at one point the district court said the record doesn't doesn't appear to suggest evidence, we don't understand. We can't. We might be able to imagine that there might be facts of discriminatory intent. Yet, it clearly, two pages later, understands that that's this case and that there is evidence to support discriminatory but non-retrogressive intent. So what so do I look at? Because, frankly, initially from your thing, I did think maybe they didn't consider this. But looking at these statements again, I, I would we, think a fair reading of it was that we looked at all the evidence. We think there isn't discriminatory Well, the question, the question, the district court then went on to say, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a little problem, uh, throat problem. The question we will answer is whether the record disproves Bossier Parish's retrogressive intent. That's right. So, and then it proceeds to go through the Arlington Heights. That's because they thought they already decided that there is no discriminatory purpose, and since there is no discriminatory purpose, they don't have to get to the question that interested us, which is whether you have to have a discriminatory purpose. Well, it it would be easy to understand if it had done the other way, which is we — there might be discriminatory purpose, but it doesn't go — it's not so bad as to be retrogressive. No, no. But since — right, but it's, it's difficult to understand that because the government always argued that the discriminatory intent in this case, the government did not argue that it was a retrogressive intent. Our entire theory of this case was that 
the, the intent of Bossier Parish School Board was to hold the line as much as possible against further black participation uh, in, the, in the affairs of the school board. So all of the evidence that went to retrogressive intent was, by definition, evidence that went to uh, it had to be, by definition, evidence that went to discriminatory intent. It's not — it wouldn't be really possible to even examine the question of retrogressive intent without considering discriminatory intent. What I'm worried about — and I'll right. say well, — maybe I'll say it again, because maybe — I'm worried that on rereading this, a fair reading of their opinion is, we understand the government is saying that the board had a discriminatory purpose for getting retrogression. Let's see whether it did. Two judges think it did not. One judge thinks it did. And therefore, the question before us would be not the general question. Can you be guilty under this statute without a retrogressive intent but with a retrogressive purpose? Because this case doesn't present that question unless we were to find that it did have a retrogressive well, uh, discriminatory. Well, we would submit that the, the — what the district court — of course, the district court ultimately found what I'd call a legal conclusion, which is that there was no purpose to deny or abridge the right to vote. In reaching that conclusion, th th this Court had previously remanded for an application of the Arlington Heights factors. In following that remand, in reaching that conclusion, it applied the Arlington Heights factors only to consider whether there was retrogressive intent. So even if it did have a view about what — about whether there was a discriminatory intent, it's not the sort of finding or, or ruling that is uh, entitled to Rule 52 a deference under the clearly erroneous standard because it didn't apply the appropriate legal framework to the record in the case. Now, no, it was never our theory that there was a retrogressive intent because it was entirely the understanding of the case that the, that as is entire as is as how we read Section 5, the main purpose of Section 5, or uh, I should say, a principal purpose of Section 5, was to stop the, the situation where. Um, uh, a jurisdiction simply replaced one discriminatory voting change with another voting law with another entitled really to hold the line or perhaps to retrench a little bit little bit bit by bit and draw out <clears throat> constantly the process of of black of increased black participation and 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 delay and delay and delay and congress reaffirmed that if I, if I may turn congress reaffirmed that in in 1970 and in 1975 and in 1982, when each time it recognized that jurisdictions having recognized that they simply, you know, it was simply unacceptable to prevent blacks from registering altogether, <clears throat> they tried new devices. They started the process of intentional vote dilution, of changing to at-large <clears throat> at districting. And I assume all those things are open to challenge under Section 2. They certainly are. They certainly are. But, of course — And uh, under Section 2, however, the burden of proof is on the plaintiff. That's, cer that's, that's absolutely correct. But one of the purposes but of Section But you would five, say that in this very case, a Section 2 challenge could be mounted. I, I believe it could be. But, of course — But it hasn't. It has not. But one of the benefits of Section 5 that Congress anticipated or understood was uh, that Section 2 challenges and affirmative Constitution litigation wouldn't have to be brought, understanding, uh, A, that it's — obviously it's expensive and Well, if you're correct, I suppose Section 2 would fall in, uh, into disuse. No, no, because it has to be — there has to be intentional — in a situation like this, it has to be intentional vote dilution. Section 2 uh, critically doesn't require that element of intent uh, on an affirmative — 
on an affirmative uh, case showing uh, vote dilution. So, oh, but what happened to the argument in your brief that it would be horrible if uh, if federal courts should have to approve under Section 5 uh, schemes that are unconstitutional? And, you, ac- you, you acknowledge that some schemes that are unconstitutional will be approved under Section 5, namely those in which there may be a violation of the Constitution, which is not which is not an intentional one within the meaning of Section 5. Well, it's not an intentional one. Well, of course, I, I may not be understanding correctly, but Mobile versus Bolden and then Rogers versus Lodge seem to indicate that proof of a discriminatory purpose is required to establish a violation of the 14th and 15th Amendment. Well, then your answer to Justice O'Connor has to be changed. Well, no, speak Section 2, in affirmative Section 2 litigation, doesn't require a showing of intent. I mean, in Thornburg versus Jingles, the Court made clear that it it can be, and and of course, when Congress amended the statute in 1982, made clear that a a Section 2 violation may be made showing on a, Mm -hmm. solely on a showing of a dilutive impact of the plan. But when the the Justice Department — But you would then have to — in some instances, uh, give approval under Section 5 if it had a dilutive impact, yet no proof of uh, discriminatory purpose. That's, I, that is correct, and it's the clear consequence of the, the Court's earlier decision in, 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 uh, in Bossier 1. That is, if it, if, it solely has a dilu- if it solely has a dilutive impact, no intent, and that impact is not retrogressive, uh, then it, it, there is neither the purpose nor the effect of, of denying or abridging the right to vote. Now, Would you have to give uh, preclearance to a plan that violated the First Amendment? The, the Attorney General does not review um, plans for violation of the First well, Amendment. But, uh, again, this goes right. to Justice Scalia's point. You say, oh, well, you can't approve Well, no, not, of course, unco- right. it's not all unconstitutional, and, and uh, we're, we're, trying, we're trying to test that. Right. Because well, the, the, under your, your view, excuse me, excuse me. Under, under your view, you would um, have, have Section 5 do all the work of Section 2 uh, no. in, in order to avoid uh, this um, uh, circumstance that you confront us with of, of the uh, Department of Justice having to approve an unconstitutional plan. But it seems to me that that would happen in, in, in various instances. Well, the statute does say denying or abridging the right to vote on account of color, race, language, minority. And its background as well shows that it was intended to enforce uh, the 14th and 15th Amendment, uh, at least its guarantees against discrimination on account of race and color. And it, it plainly — it was written and was plainly to intended to enforce uh, at the very — at the beginning the 15th Amendment as well. Now, the 14th Amendment, it does include discriminate vote — intentional vote dilution claims. It, it also includes one person, one vote, and and preclearance courts don't generally review a plan solely because it might not comply with one person, one vote. Oh, but it uh, does, but, it does uh, eliminate some of the, you know, the instinctive reaction. My, will a court have to approve something that is unconstitutional? There's, it's no doubt that in some instances uh, the Section 5 uh, procedure envisions a court approving something that's unconstitutional. All it's saying is it is not unlawful in this respect. Well, it's and doesn't Section 5 itself refer to uh, — uh, to other challenges, to, to a Section 2 uh, proceeding? Yes, but — And you think that, that it refers to them only for that narrow class of cases that you described? Well, it, it's Section — an enforcement proceeding under Section 2 and Section 5 um, is also an enforcement relating to denying or abridging 
or having the result of such on account of race or color. It's, it's Section 2 doesn't assimilate the First Amendment and permit a, a First Amendment challenge to a, a, a voting change. Um, however, uh, Congress's intent, again, in, in enacting Section 5 was to enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments. Now, of course, in a, in a preclearance case, there may be a First Amendment concern out there, but it's unlikely that there is going to be evidence brought to the Court's attention that might, you know, would bear directly on a First Amendment challenge. But in a, in a uh, Section 5 case, there's likely to be extensive evidence that uh, the, the change was enacted with the intent to discriminate against minorities. And yet, under the Board's submission, as long as, uh, you know, essentially non-retrogression per- creates a safe harbor for that intentional discrimination. As long as we can say, well, it's true that we, you know, it's true that we intended to discriminate, but we intent- didn't intend to make anything worse than that, than preclearances, and we didn't make anything worse uh, than preclearances required. It's difficult to believe that the Congress that enacted the Voting Rights Act in 65 and then reenacted it three times, and with the reenactment also directed its specific attention to the problem of intentional vote dilution, recognizing that, yes, blacks were formally being allowed to cast a ballot. So in that sense, they were registering to vote. So in that sense, there had been an amelioration. But nonetheless, the the, uh, devices were being arranged to prevent those uh, votes from being — from literally being affected, and intentionally so. Mr. Wilson, I I want to get clear on what you think the burden is. As I understand it, uh, you take the position that if it is clear from the evidence that goes in in the Section 5 proceeding uh, that there would be an intent to discriminate, uh, that there cannot be Section 5 approval, if it's obvious. Not just if it's, I mean, not just if it's clear. That is, we do take the position that the jurisdiction does have the burden of proof uh, on it. Well, that was going to be my next question. Does the jurisdiction have the burden to prove affirmatively not only that there would be no retrogression, but that there is no intent to dilute? Yes, but All right, but, if, but that doesn't mean I mean th- that doesn't mean that it ha- it's a burden that's well, impossible may, to meet. Uh, it's time is short, so <laughs> may, forgive me for interrupting you. If if you are right on the burden of proof, then was the district court wrong here because it made no affirmative finding uh, with respect to that burden? It in effect, I think that you could read the district court as saying, we can't find that there was an affirmative intent to dilute. But the issue it should have addressed, on your view, is uh, was there a showing by the district that there was no intent to dilute? Absolutely, right. it, and 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 it, it did not make that. It did not make that finding. It passed by this entire issue uh, quite rapidly. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Wilson. Ms. Ms. Brannon, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Mr. Price and the other defendant interveners are back before the Court today because they have been trying for seven years to have the Bossier Parish School Board adopt a non-discriminatory reapportionment. On, on that, could I just, because you know the record well in this. I found in the question Justice Souter just asked, in the first opinion, the Court says plaintiff, i.e., the Board, yes. bears the burden of proving that it did not adopt the police jury plan with a discriminatory purpose. Yes. Or, well, why didn't that do just what they're supposed to do, which is that the person who draws up the plan has to prove that it didn't have a discriminatory purpose? Your Honor, What's the we problem ag- with that? Your Honor, we agree that that is an accurate statement of the burdens of proof. 
But we think that what happened on the remand is that the Court, and I'm referring here to Appendix Page 3A, to the Appendix to the Jurisdictional Statement, when the Court framed up the legal issue before it began any analysis of the evidence at all, and it said ultimately three things. We know three things it said that we, I think, can all understand. That it won't deal with the legal issue of intent to retrogress versus discriminatory intent that this Court had asked it to deal with on remand. That the question it would answer, this is at the top of 4A, is whether the record disproves Bossier Parish's retrogressive intent. And then as it applied the Arlington Heights factors, that's the factual analysis. It then limited itself. It did. You're absolutely right. But the reason that it did is it said to go into the discriminatory purpose, not discriminatory non-retrogressive purpose question, would require imagined facts. It says we can imagine facts where that would be an issue, but that isn't the case before us. So I assume that what it's doing is simply referring back to its first opinion where it said we find on the facts, giving the burden of proof to the Board, that the Board has borne the burden of proof and there is no discriminatory purpose. And that, that's how — I mean, I, 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 do, I want to be fair to the, dis, mm-hmm. to the, to the district court. And, and if it's not, that's, that's, of course, what your opponents will say it said. So I, I want to, you, you to explain why that isn't what it meant. Because, Your Honor, on 3A, the, the closest language we have, just before the passage you referenced about imagined facts, it said the record will not support a conclusion that extends beyond the presence or absence of retrogressive intent. That does not sound like a fact-finding, that there is no discriminatory purpose beyond retrogressive intent. Well, wh- the definition why, of the issue. Well, wh- why doesn't it? When they say the record won't support a finding, that, that would be my idea anyway of a precise find, fact-finding. Your Honor, because it follows the words with the presence oh. or the absence as if the parties never addressed the issue. And, in fact, the whole case was never about retrogression. We stipulated retrogression away well, do, before do we, we started. Do we usually parse a district court's findings and conclusions uh, quite this minutely? I mean, uh, there's really a presumption in favor of a district court's findings of fact. Your Honor, and, and we agree. And with all respect to the district court, of course, in this process, there's no intermediate court of appeals to sort some of this. So you're reviewing directly the trial court decision. Which Am I, I right think is that you did not um, ask to reopen the record? No one asked to reopen the record. Am I right that you did not ask to reopen the That's record? That's correct. When, when it speaks of, of uh, neither presence nor absence, isn't it saying uh, that on the evidence uh, we are left in a total state of equipoise regardless of who has the burden? Your Honor, I, I think it is making some kind of a statement that the issue simply is not present in the record. And, in fact, that just cannot be the case. Well, they couldn't have — I was going to say, they couldn't have meant that because of the evidence that went in. So isn't it fair to read it as saying — uh, in effect, regardless of who has the burden here, the evidence leaves us really uh, in, in equipoise. Uh, we can't say there was, we can't say there wasn't. Which in this case, Justice Souter, if that is a fair reading, the, the judgment should be reversed. The board here had the burden of proof, and in so fact — So equipoise will, will not do it if it had the Yes, and, and equipoise will lead to reversal. Where does it say equipoise? I, I thought that it, that it, that it what he's saying S- — Souter said equipoise. <laughs> So, so he, if the, if the rec, I mean, we don't do this with, look, I mean, may, there's an elephant in the room. The issue is the elephant, all right? And mm-hmm. the, here everybody talks, never mentions it. Well, I mean, they're not that. 
uh, unaware. The whole issue in this case is discriminatory purpose. Your Honor, so if he yes, says — Yes, Justice Breyer, but there are two elephants. One is retrogressive purpose, yes. and the other is non-retrogressive discriminatory purpose. They talked about the former, but not the latter. And only reached the one, and in, in some assumption at the start of the opinion didn't reach the other. And I would also point out, Justice Breyer, that there are findings on page 7A of the appendix that cannot be squared with some finding that there was no discriminatory purpose. The Court found, I quote, the evidence rather clearly establishes that the Board did not welcome improvement in the where, position where, where on 7A are you reading from, Ms. I am on page 7A, Your Honor. Uh, at the bottom of the page, about six lines up. Thanks. This is with respect to departure from normal practices. <coughs> the evidence establishes rather clearly that the Board did not welcome improvement in the position of racial minorities with respect to their effective exercise of the electoral franchise. Now, Arlington Heights teaches that a discriminatory purpose infecting a governmental decision, even if there are some legitimate purposes that the governmental entity can cite to, invalidates that decision, that the deference that is owed by a federal court to a decision falls away at that point. It's not just another purpose. It's a purpose that's at the core of the Constitution. Well, excuse me. Is it, does it constitute discriminatory purpose not to welcome something? I mean, it is, 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 is that the burden that non-discrimination imposes upon the Board? Justice welcome Scalia, a certain state of it's affairs? one of three ways on that same page that the district court talked about what Mr. Wolfson referred to, holding the line. This is a district with no majority black districts in its history and no election. statement says is that they weren't happy with the state of affairs. It doesn't suggest that they took in, and in fact, it would be contrary to the remainder of the opinion to suggest that it, uh, that it said that they, you know, that they had any purpose of preventing that state of affairs. Well, Your Honor, the Court also talks on that same page in the connection with the school desegregation history about the Board's tenacious determination to maintain the status quo. And it also talks about powerful support for the proposition that the school board, in fact, resisted adopting a redistricting plan that would have created majority black districts. Excuse me. The tenacious determination. I'm sorry, Chief. Go ahead. uh, Certainly that's not inconsistent with the sort of finding that would support affirmance here. Your Honor, standing alone, I don't think it would be, but in the context of this record in which there were irregularities in procedure, a whole year of knowing that the police jury plan was there and pre-cleared, and the Board only rushed to that plan when one thing happened, when it saw a map that showed — Okay, you're arguing facts, and you've got to show that the district court's findings were clearly erroneous. Now, are you in the process of doing that now? No, Your Honor. What we're we're saying is that these these findings on page 7 demonstrate (laughs) that what we were referring to earlier on page 3 is a statement of legal issues and legal conclusions, not of facts, because the two simply cannot be reconciled on this record. And, Your Honor, if I might, um, with respect to Justice O'Connor's question about Section 2, there are at least three very crucial purposes that are served by Section 2 that simply would not be covered by Section 5 if our view of the reading of Section 5 prevails. One is that Section 2 covers the whole United States, not just covered jurisdictions. It is, it is available to private parties for affirmative litigation, which, of course, Section 5 isn't. We intervened here. And Section 5, of course, covers only changes 
Section 2 can be used to attack voting practices that have been in effect for 50 years. So we think that Section 2 is both are crucial, can be read together and very consistently, <laughs> reading purpose the way we read purpose. The final point I'd like to make is that a reading of the purpose clause to be coextensive with the constitutional protection that this Court really called into play when it commended Arlington Heights on remand makes sense. For example, if the board here had barred black citizens from its public meetings on this plan, had hurled racial epithets at them, had said, we will never let you people elect someone in this district, we would still be at a point of having to pre-clear this if the test is retrogression, because this is not to me our first responsibility is not to make sense of the law. The first responsibility is to follow the text of the law. And I, I find it very difficult to over, overcome the obstacle that the law says does not have the purpose and will not have the effect of X. And what you're arguing is that that means does not have the purpose, does not have the effect of X, but does not have the purpose of Y. Yes, I don't Your know Honor. of any other instance in not just in, in, the, in the United States Code, in, 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 in human expression, where you say does not have the purpose and effects of X, and you mean one thing for purpose and another for, for effect. Do you have any other example? Your Honor, I would commend to the Court page 141 of the Beer decision, in which the effect construction uh, was interpreted to be retrogression. The statute says does not have the purpose, that is talking about the present purpose of the governmental decision-maker, and will not have the effect, which, as the Court said in Beer, had a predictive quality to it, which is a uh, different Thank you, measure. Mr. Brand. Uh, we'll hear now from you, uh, Mr. Carvin. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, to begin to follow up on Justice Scalia's last question, I think it's apparent that appellants can't argue that the plain language of the statute as interpreted in the retrogression cases supports their view of Section 5. So I'd like to address directly their, their broader argument that the goal of Section 5 was to enforce the 15th Amendment and therefore it must prohibit everything that the 15th Amendment prohibits. We agree, certainly that Congress was using its 15th Amendment enforcement power when it imposed the extraordinary preclearance procedures that it did on covered jurisdictions. But we know for two very fundamental reasons that it was not incorporating the 15th Amendment's substantive prohibition against non-retrogressive discriminatory changes. Most obviously, Section 5 simply cannot remedy non-retrogressive discriminatory changes. It can't reach it. There's a million examples, but a simple one would be Let's assume the covered jurisdiction has a polling place that's six blocks away from the minority neighborhood, and the proposed change is to move it five blocks away. And it's stipulated that they would have moved it four blocks away, more convenient, but for pure racial animus. What is your remedy under Section 5? You deny the change. You deny the move to five blocks from the minority neighborhood, and you reinstate the status quo ante. So now the polling place is six blocks away from the minority neighborhood. And Beer recognized this reality. Section 5 cannot be offended by changes which maintain the status quo. You say Beer rec- rec- recognized the reality. Do you agree with everything said in the Beer opinion? Certainly, uh, as particularly as interpreted in, in Shaw. No, I'm and just I, confining myself to the Beer opinion. I, I think there's some ambiguous dicta in the Beer opinion. Oh. And none of which helps them on their statutory argument, I hasten to add. Nothing in Beer suggests that Section 5 prohibits an unconstitutional purpose. 
as you pointed out in your dissenting opinion in Bossier 1, Justice Stevens, you certainly could interpret some dicta in Beer to say, um, if there's a constitutional violation, that may be an additional basis for objecting under Section 5. But I would submit that that interpretation of the Beer dicta is contrary to the subsequent interpretation that this Court advanced in Shaw and is contrary to the plain language of Section 5. Shaw looked at that language in Beer and it said, uh, Beer was not saying that you can inject a constitutional issue into a Section 5 proceeding. It was simply making the substantive point that we are advancing here, that the Constitution is a more demanding standard than Section 5. I, and I, under, I understand that argument. Your position here, as your legal position is, if the Board stipulated ahead of time, our purpose in adopting this plan <laughs> was to keep, not allow any additional election of blacks on the Board, they would, but it won't, they'll get just as many as they always had in the past. Nothing will be worse. That the uh, department would have a duty to preach there. And my, yes, I would answer yes to that hypothetical, Justice Stevens. And if that's a troubling prospect, I can only, again, repeat that Section 5 doesn't get it that No, I, I understand. But that's but, the legal position. And the factual but, question is, is, that is why, as I understand it, the district court felt it unnecessary to decide whether those were, in fact, the facts. Wouldn't you agree with that? No, I think the uh, district court refused to issue the ruling that Section 5 only reaches retrogressive purpose. It said, we are agnostic as to whether it reaches discriminatory purpose or retrogressive purpose because we have a discriminatory purpose case in front of us. We can imagine a case where that makes a difference, that legal standard makes a difference if there was uh, no discriminate where, where there was no retrogressive purpose but a discriminatory purpose. But it says, as has been pointed out, those imagined facts are not present here. Right. And so, the point was that the record just shows, at most, a ter- tenacious determination to maintain the status quo. Well, uh, and there, so, so the record is equipo- in equipoise on whether there's more or less than that. Uh, well, actually, I think you need to read the, the, the preceding page, 5A, to understand what the district court was doing on page 7A, which uh, you quoted from Justice Stevens. The, the, the court couldn't have been clear. It said we're readapting the burden standard that we used in our — From 5A now, Mr. — Yes. Uh, uh, Chief five. Justice Rehnquist, right, the uh, — The first full sentence, exactly, actually. They said, in our first opinion, and we are now readopting, acknowledges the difficulty of the school board's burden to prove the absence of discriminatory intent. Their burden is to come here and prove their innocence on discriminatory intent, not — Sorry, I've lost where you were reading. I'm sorry. The first full sentence — First full sentence. And maybe if I read it, it wouldn't be so confusing. In applying the standards set forth above — To the record of this case, we adhere to our earlier attempt to fashion a method of analysis set forth in our earlier opinion that acknowledges the difficulty of the school board's burden to prove the absence of discriminatory intent. Thus, we begin again with the observation that they had a very good reason to reject the non-dilutive alternative offered by the NAACP and to select uh, the police jury plan that they did. They were examining here again discriminatory purpose. If there's any further ambiguity on that, if the court would turn to 105A, which is the first district court opinion that they are referencing, um, it says, again, this would be about the second full sentence on um, 105A. This is the district court's first opinion where it says, to make out a prima facie case for preclearance, just a prima facie case for preclearance, the school board must demonstrate that the proposed change will have no retrogressive effect 
and that the change was <coughs> undertaken without a discriminatory purpose. But what I think that's mean, their, what that's their they, standard. But what did they mean by discriminatory purpose in that sentence? Well, that's it's the issue. Well, I think that's clarified perhaps in the following sentence. Proof of non-discriminatory purpose must include legitimate reasons for settling on the given change. And they quote Richmond. In other words, they are using the standard discriminatory purpose analysis that this Court constantly uses, did they have a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for choosing uh, the option that had a negative effect, if you will, on minorities? Can I go back for one second? There are two kinds of arguments here. One is the argument of applying the standard to this case, which I'm not — I want to go to your more general argument. Your more general argument is that non-retrogressive discriminatory purpose does not fall within Section 5. Exactly. All right. In respect to that, you say there'd be no remedy. Go back into history. I thought that the purpose of Section 5 was to stop what they considered a moving target. No black person would ever have voted in this part of Mississippi. And what would happen next is Mississippi would come up with a non-retrogressive plan, 15 pages long, not just moving a voting booth from here to there. Hard to understand. And what Section 5 is trying to do is say, even if that's a little better, even if now 1 percent of the black people can vote, we want 100 percent of the black people to vote. And so the fact that it's just a little bit better, if it has a bad purpose, in other words, not to cure the problem, we don't want it implemented. But that was my understanding of the purpose of Section 5, and why doesn't this kind of problem fall right within its purpose? I think the Court has consistently said in Deere and many other cases over the last 20 years that the purpose of Section 5 was not to eliminate perpetuation of the status quo. It says that the purpose of Section 5 has always been to prohibit retrogression from the status quo, as as is inherent in the statute. But to deal directly with, I think you're referencing the South Carolina v. Katzenbach case, yes, obviously uh, blacks in the South in the 1960s had a very difficult time. And so what did Section 5 cure that problem in two ways? It banned literacy tests, the primary disenfranchisement tool. And it said that these other uh, voting procedures that they hadn't found discriminatory were also subject to, to review because they were freezing those election procedures so that they could not undo the gains, the very fragile gains that uh, the blacks had just made when the literacy tests were banned. But South Carolina v. Katzenbach doesn't suggest that as to those other voting procedures, not the literacy tests, that maintenance <coughs> of those would somehow be a problem under Section 5. Again, we're talking about at-large districts and things that would dilute minority voting power. It would be a counterproductive reading of Section 5 to suggest that if a district went from an at-large district to a single-member district, and it only created one black majority district, and for purely racial reasons, it refused to create a second black majority district, essentially the issue here, that you would deny that baby step that the Southern jurisdiction was taking. Is that how it worked? I I thought it worked, if we go back into history, that that basically you'd proceed under Section 2, the government would be out there, the Civil Rights Division would be out there, and and they'd be proceeding against the bad practices that were in effect. And what they want is not get distracted with some other practices that are all different, but they're not that much better. So so it isn't going to leave in place. 
the bad practices, because we'll proceed, says the Department, against the ones that are in place under other provisions. Precisely. That right. is a perfect articulation of the way that Section 2 in the Constitution would work in tandem with Section 5. We don't want to be so, distracted so, by these new things that come in, and these new things are not retrogressive but they are done with a discriminatory purpose. Right. We don't want to be distracted with them. So if they're not making anything worse, but they're making things a little bit better. Yeah, don't not, put them in place. But not good enough. Mm -hmm. Then you sue under Section 2 in the Constitution. And they'd be in place. Not until he sued. Not after you sued. In other words, there were, this was an extraordinary procedure. Again, where the, the, the southern jurisdictions had to prove themselves innocent of presumed guilt. Congress is very aware, of course, of the extraordinary nature of that burden, and it limited the substantive goal, as this Court has said three or four times, to a precise manageable <laughs> question. And if you ask yourself the question, does a voting change abridge the right to vote, you have to ask yourself the subsequent question, abridged as compared to what? As compared to any hypothetical that a uh, Justice Department lawyer can come up with? No. As opposed to a manageable system, the existing system. Are things worse? Have you abridged it as compared to the existing system? And that, uh, Justice Breyer, with all respect, was the essential lesson of the, the Court's first Mr. opinion. Mr. Chairman, may I ask, uh, just to be sure I understood one thing you said correctly, if I under, if, if we disagreed with you on your interpretation of what the purpose prong is. It's diluted. Would you agree that the burden is on the jurisdiction? If the Constitution is injected into the Section 5 proceeding, the United States conceded in Bossier 1, and that interpretation of Beer confirms that the burden is on them to prove a constitutional violation. No, that wasn't my question. Oh, I'm sorry. If, if, the, if, if the burden under Section 5 is to prove our stipulated case, our stipulated case, if that's not the right reading of the statute, but rather it would preclude preclearance if the burden is to maintain the status quo for discriminatory reasons, because you want to keep blacks from voting. And in order to overcome that, if the uh, — does this — did you agree that the uh, jurisdiction has the burden of proof? Again, if we — if you have interpreted Section 5 right. purpose to include what you just described, yeah. then surely the burden is on the covered jurisdiction. But as I understood the government's argument, it was that they derived from beer not the notion that Section 5 precludes this, but that it would be unthinkable, as was said, that, that the Section 5 court could somehow ignore a constitutional violation. And so if the reason you are denying preclearance is because it's unthinkable that there's a constitutional violation, then the burden would be on the government. But we don't think that you would get, ever get into a constitutional issue in a Section 5 proceeding, because Section 5 obviously only prohibits changes that violate Section 5. It does not prohibit changes that violate the First Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment's one person, one vote, or indeed the Shaw gerrymander principles. Under the United States theory, no, the it's Section the 5 — Fifteenth Amendment statute, we're only concerned with violations of the Fifteenth Amendment. I — is — then — I don't understand the notion — well, again, if it's the 15th Amendment, that doesn't help us in the redistricting context, because Mobile made clear, or certainly the plurality made clear, that the 15th Amendment doesn't read vote dilution issues at all. It doesn't reach redistricting plans. It only reaches access to the ballot. So when Congress amended uh, — reenacted Section 5 in 1982, they could not have intended to have incorporated the 15th Amendment standard, because if they did that, then Section 5 wouldn't reach redistricting plans at all. And that was the last thing, obviously, that they wanted to happen, because everyone agrees they wanted to get a redistricting plan. 
So I don't think that there's an issue of taking a limited Section 5 court and suggesting that you can expand its um, job to include constitutional issues any more than you could expand the claims court, another special court in D.C., to include issues like due process and things like that. That does not in any way endorse a constitutional violation any more than, as Justice O'Connor pointed out, it endorses a Section 2 violation. It simply recognizes that that's not part of the limited job uh, that the Section 5 court is intended to perform. I would also point out, as, as interesting as this merits issue is, there's another reason I, I think that the Court cannot uh, reach it, and that's because plaintiffs simply have no standing to uh, bring this appeal. They cannot show that it's certain or probable that the redistricting plan enacted threatens their voting rights in any way in the future. Indeed, there's no reasonable likelihood that this redistricting plan will ever again be used. Well, does, the, does your <laughs> argument address the government's standing as well as the individual plaintiff's standing? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. In South Carolina v. Katzenbach, they said you only have a case or controversy under Section 5 if the covered jurisdiction wishes to implement the change. <laughs> then you have a conflict between the covered jurisdiction and the United States. But here, they not only don't wish to have any more elections under this plan. The last ones were in 1998. There will be no further pl- uh, elections. In the event they have an election, they wish to implement it. Certainly. If it was possible for them to have an election before 2002, then they would want to use this plan. Well, but un- if, if, they, if, they pre- pre- if the appellants prevail, is, is it open to the uh, court to order an election, say, in the year 2000? No court can undo a pre-cleared plan on the basis of a subsequently discovered Section 5 violation. The D.C. District Court under Section 5 can only grant or deny the declaratory judgment. And whether that's granted or denied, as I say, there will be no further elections during this census period under the current redistricting plan. The local district court can only say you must submit any future proposed voting change to be submitted for preclearance. But it has no power to undo a prior election uh, because it has, among other things, no power to review the merits of any Section 5 determination. So there's simply no court that can remedy the past harm that they suggest they have suffered because of the 1998 elections. Stipulating on, the, on the mootness question, why isn't it, since we're talking about 2002 as the next election, why isn't it possible to have a, a vacancy? A current member dies. I want to hold a special election. I think that's possible, but I don't think this court uh, establishes standing on the basis of remote or conjectural possibilities. Well, wh- but, how many uh, members are there on this board? Twelve. And what are their average ages? I, there's been no actuarial analysis done by uh, by the appellants in this case, who obviously have the burden. But but let me put it this way: the chances of somebody dying on this board are far less than that the plaintiffs in Lujan would visit the endangered species because they said they were going to visit the endangered species. They just hadn't specified a time. And so the, the appellants can't argue that they've got a current plan in place that threatens. People do not intend to die. <laughs> is, is that your point? <laughs> More precisely, they don't intend to die before October of 2001. <laughs> uh, well, there are and, other uh, things, human frailties. I mean, they could, one could get sick, uh, could lose a job. People believe things happen. That would be a change in the status quo. 
But I think the other, my alternative argument is, even if there's one vacancy, that doesn't um, get appellants the relief they seek, which is a redrawn 12 districts, a whole new plan. If preclearance is denied and somebody dies or leaves, all the jurisdiction could possibly do is uh, put in uh, a preclearance for that one seat. It would never redraw the other 12 seats because those other 11 incumbents, of course, have just been elected to four-year terms. They can't throw them out because they need an election in one district, particularly since three of those incumbents, of course, are black. And if a Southern That's jurisdiction — not in the record. It couldn't be in the record, with all respect, Justice Ginsburg, because it didn't occur until after the district court record was closed. These I'm elections sure we should were, be going into extra record material. Well, but I think the Court can take judicial notice, A, of the fact that the election occurred in October of 98, and we're simply asking the Court to take judicial notice of the fact that uh, the, the election resulted in three black candidates currently Why don't you voluntarily board. dismiss your action seeking preclearance? We'd love to. If, if once you, we, we actually didn't respond, as this Court may or may not know, to the uh, jurisdictional statement. If you remand, we will dismiss voluntarily. I, I would. So you no longer want preclearance. It doesn't do us any good because we're not going to. Well, let, let me put it this way: there is the remote possibility of a vacancy, so there is some marginal value in having preclearance, and that I would suggest is why uh, this case should not be Munsingware. Because if you Munsingware vacate. Uh, uh, the opinion below, you have essentially given the appellants a victory on the merits. Chris, you're arguing in support of a motion that nobody's made, it seems to me. You're, you're arguing in, are you arguing in support of a suggestion for mootness? We, we put this in our motion to dismiss or affirm, and our primary argument for dismissing the case was dismissal for want of jurisdiction, uh, because, as we pointed out, this is, this is all past. This is all a past. But leaving the judgment in a, in a place is what you wanted to do. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You're entirely correct, Justice Stevens. I think it's their burden to make a motion on vacator, and, and if the Court would like further briefing in and when that motion is made, I, I was simply making the point that Section 5 is unique and, and the normal Munsingware principles don't apply. May I ask you one more question about the facts, assuming we still have a case? That the, okay. um, I, I don't want to get into the legal argument. I understand your position on the legal argument. But on the factual question of just what the Court below did decide, uh-huh. is one sentence I'd like you to comment on. It's the first sentence of the second paragraph in 3A, We are not certain whether or not we've been invited to answer the question the Court left for another day, which, of course, was the legal question. But we declined to do so in this case because the record will not support a conclusion that extends beyond the presence or absence of retrogressive intent. Now, my question is, why isn't that a statement that if there is this other legal issue about which you you take a different position, the record on that point is in equipoise? No, I think it's saying that it will not support. I don't think it's saying that the the uh, record is in equipoise on the it, question it, of non-retrogressive discriminatory intent. I think it's saying that the record will not support. A conclusion that extends beyond the presence or absence, so it could go either way, it seems uh, to me. Oh, I'm sorry, yes, of retrogressive intent. Right. The retrogressive intent issue may well be in equipoise. But, but if the burden — But not the discriminatory intent issue. They are arguing that the district court decided that Section 5, as a matter of law, doesn't reach beyond retrogressive intent. And oh. well, I'm, and that's, they, my point is this says we're not going to have to decide that because the evidence doesn't bear on that issue. Right. That's so, the way I read that. But it seems to me so, that if the evidence does not bear on that issue, they do have to decide it because the, 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 the assumption on which the issue has been brought up is, and, and this the Court recognized the first time around, 
rightly or wrongly, this was their position and this is the government's position, that the burden of proving uh, the non-rest — that there is no discriminatory non-retrogressive intent uh, is upon the board. And therefore, if the evidence is, as a matter of probity, in equipoise, then the board hasn't carried its burden. And therefore, that court, the district court, and ultimately this one, has got to decide whether or not there is, in fact, any relevance in uh, a, an, an, an intent to discriminate which is non-retrogressive. So it seems to me that on, on, on the, the hypothesis that you agreed with, they should have decided the legal issue. Well, may, maybe this will clarify. The United States says that Section 5 prohibits two things, discriminatory purpose and retrogressive purpose, and that's what they argued to the Court below. And they said you must decide uh, whether or not it reaches most of those things. And the District Court said we don't need to decide that because we are finding that there was no discriminatory purpose, that you haven't made well, your then, case then out for the broader standard. I, I don't see how you can read their finding that way, as, as Justice Stevens has just quoted it. Uh, they, 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 I, I don't have my page open, so I won't try to quote it again, but they, in effect, I think, are saying uh, there's, there's, there's nothing either way on this issue. No finding either way on this issue is possible. Justice Souter, if that sentence is ambiguous, I think that ambiguity is resolved in the following sentence, which says, we can imagine a set of facts that would establish a non-retrogressive but nevertheless discriminatory purpose. We can imagine a set of facts that would violate um, uh, the the smaller standard. But those imagined facts are not present here. It's hard that, that left that still left the issue open because the the question if they if they had said uh, we we can imagine facts uh, in in which the um, uh, it could be it could be shown uh, that there was sorry, if, let me make it simpler the facts that they had to address were facts showing whether or not the board had shown no retrogressive purpose, and they don't address that issue in the language you just quoted. They say that the Board has met its burden with discriminatory purpose, and then it goes on to discuss well, that well, well the Board has made it on retrogressive purpose. That, that, it sounds as though they're saying we can imagine facts on which the government could prove that there was a discriminatory non-retrogressive purpose, but we don't have that before us. Uh, but that's not the issue. Just Souter, I, I'm not suggesting that this opinion is a model of clarity on all issues, but I am, I am suggesting that it was clear about it what, what it wasn't deciding. And what it wasn't deciding is the question that's been presented on this appeal, because it didn't decide that Section 5 reaches only retrogressive purpose but says nothing about discriminatory purpose. And then it went on to explain why in this passage. But even if that's ambiguous, we know they didn't resolve the issue one way or another. Your point is that the other question has not been appealed? Precisely. The adequacy of the discriminatory purpose findings, whether Arlington Heights was followed or whether, as Mr. Chief Justice pointed out, they were supported by uh, findings that were not clearly erroneous, has not been presented as a question to this Court. They did not present an alternative question saying if the Court did look at discriminatory purpose, it didn't support that finding, that legal standard with appropriate findings. What what was the question presented specifically? It would have to come from the uh, statement. statement.
whether the district court erred in concluding that because the Bossier Parish School Board's 1992 redistricting plan was not enacted with a retrogressive purpose, it was not enacted with the, quote, the purpose of denying or abridging the right to vote on account of race, close quote, within the meaning of Section 5. Right. And there's no alternative question, like there was in the first appeal in this case, assuming that the district court didn't make a retrogressive purpose finding but made a discriminatory purpose finding, that that discriminatory purpose finding was not supported by adequate um, findings or, or properly applied the Arlington Heights standard. In other words, but it, it concluded that it was not enacted with the bad purpose. With the discriminatory. And we have to decide whether that's right. And the appellants are arguing that you can look behind that finding. No, it's what we're supposed to do. The problem is, suppose that they said, we may reach that conclusion on the following ground. We reach the conclusion on the ground uh, that uh, what? What everything they had said in their first opinion, which they reincorporated. Right, that's, that, that's what's disturbing me. What are we supposed to do when the dissent says, majority, the Supreme Court told you to answer two questions. A, assume no retrogressive purpose. A, was there another, nonetheless a discriminatory purpose? B, if the answer to question one is yes, does that make out a violation of Section 5? But the dissent and, then, and then what we get is an ambiguous statement in the majority. What are we supposed to do? The dissent was wrong about what the remand from this court was. This court was not suggesting that the district court should decide legal questions that aren't necessary to the result in that case to, to engage in, in dicta. It was saying, look, if the validity of the board's plan turns on the difference between discriminatory purpose and retrogressive <coughs> purpose, you tell us which one Section 5 prohibits. And the district court said the validity of this plan doesn't turn on that because they have disproved both discriminatory purpose and retrogressive purpose. And that is why all the quotations that the appellants were offering up was in the second part of the opinion. We've already dealt with discriminatory purpose. Now the Supreme Court's asked us to look at retrogressive purpose. We will go through again and do that analysis. And I would suggest that if you're trying to clarify any ambiguities in the majority opinion, I would look at uh, Judge Silverman's concurring opinion, not the dissent, where he says with some vigor we don't understand why the Supreme Court remanded this to us because we did apply the Arlington Heights factors in the first opinion. We did look at the loot of impact, and now we've done it again. So this is a very simple case. I mean, they could have written a, a two-paragraph opinion saying the, the ambiguities that the Supreme Court perceived in our initial opinion we did not think were there. We reaffirm that there was no discriminatory purpose, notwithstanding uh, the dilutive impact of, uh, of the Board's plan. Uh, if there are no further questions. I Thank you, Mr. Carvin. Mr. Wilson, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I, I want to address the point that uh, sec there is a sort of a divergence between Section 5 and the Constitution, and the, because the Court, in all of the Court's decisions in Beer and both before Beer and after, the Court has seen a very close connection between Section 5 and the 14th and 15th Amendments, and in particular with respect to its purpose prong. In Section 5, in discussing the retrogressive effect uh, uh, prong, the Court said that a, an ameliorative plan uh, cannot be denied preclearance unless it has, unless it so continues to discriminate uh, as to violate the Constitution, clearly identifying the possibility of a constitutional violation under the purpose prong as a separate basis for denial for preclearance. City of Pleasant Grove, in our view, cannot be explained 
uh, as cannot be explained under the uh, board's theory of uh, the purpose prong of Section 5, because city of, it was stipulated in City of Pleasant Grove. Uh, it was understood that it, there could not possibly have been a retrogressive effect of the annexations that were undertaken in that case. There were no black voters in either the annexing jurisdiction or the uh, parcels that were annexed. And the Court uh, stated in that case that the, 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 the defect in the city's argument was that it was trying to short-circuit the purpose inquiry by arguing that the intended effect was permissible. And that is exactly the, that is exactly the proposition that is being advanced here, which is that uh, if it's a retrogressive effect, then uh, all that is the only invalid purpose is to cause that very same effect. Uh, similarly, in City of Richmond, uh, the Court, uh, uh, identifying very similar analysis, said, yes, it, thank, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wilson. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.